Get your Bibles. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to be reading verses 7 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord for you, his church, this morning. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. His love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So we pray by it this morning that you would challenge us, that you would change us, that you would comfort us and encourage us. Lord, as we begin a new year, would we build our foundation on who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, growing up, my brother... Uh, Chaz, you might have met him before. He looks just like me, a little bit shorter, and his voice is about two octaves deeper, so you can never really truly confuse the two of us. Uh, but my brother, uh, he's an engineer now, but back in the day, he loved to build with Legos. He had this big tub of Legos that sat in our playroom growing up that he would just build these wild structures out of. Uh, but when he got into middle school, he got into these city building sets that Lego was releasing. So these were massive really complicated Lego sets that were representing things like a fire station or a grocery store or a hotel. And they were really elaborate and really pretty. And my brother got into these uh, and his Lego fever went from lukewarm to fever hot. And so he started building these things all the time. And my brother had a very, very intricate process when he would embark on maybe this four day journey of building this massive Lego structure. Uh, first, he would get all the bags out and he would put them in piles all over the playroom. So basically I couldn't get in there 
uh, when he was building these Lego sets. And then he would take this big gray sheet. It had studs on it. He would take this big gray sheet and he would lay it down in the middle of the room. And then he would start building walls. And he would just slowly start building walls. And I kid you not, probably the first day or so of this project that my brother was working on, you couldn't tell what the building was. All it was was this gray sheet and a couple bricks around the edge that was kind of forming the wall. There were no mini figures being put down. There was nothing, no stickers or anything to kind of tell you like, oh, this is what he's building. Nothing to really enjoy. It was honestly kind of ugly and boring. It was just a foundation sheet and a couple walls and other things that were kind of, eh, not really interesting. That's why I never got into Legos. I, you know, instant gratification. But as he kept building, everything he would do would be built on this gray sheet. Nothing would reach out of it. Nothing would extend beyond it. But everything was built on the gray sheet. And what that gray sheet allowed was for this building to get taller and taller and taller and stronger, protected it from tipping over and falling. It allowed these really complex, cool things to be built on top of it. And so while it was the most boring part of watching my brother build these elaborate Lego sets, the foundation was actually the most important part because it allowed for everything that came after it, right? And I tell that story this morning because I want us to see how important foundations are, how important foundations are as we're building new and important things. Some of y'all know Alice and I recently bought a house. And one of the first questions that I always get asked about the house is how's your foundation? And the reason they ask me that question is because foundations are important. If the foundation is bad, that means the house is doomed. If it's good, that means the house has good bones and that it's gonna, you can add on to it and you, it's gonna be a good home for us, right? Foundations are important because if the foundation is weak, it only can support the smallest of structures before it falls in and caves in on itself. And so as we, begin a new church year. So we come back and we see what God has for us in 2023. I think it's good this morning on New Year's Day to do a foundation check, right? How strong is our foundation as a church? Can it support what we want to build on top of it? Is it strong enough? Is it sturdy enough for what we're trying to do as a church in 2023? Because, and this is a simple idea. Jesus talked about this all the time having a strong foundation. But I think oftentimes Christians miss this more than any other biblical truth. And I think even in 2022, we've seen a lot of churches get this wrong, that their foundation was either not right or it was severely weakened, right? I think we've seen churches build their foundation, not necessarily on the truths of the gospel, but they've built their foundation on the kind of the impression of the pastors and staff, very exciting communicators that draw people in, draw people together. But what we've seen is it only takes one crack, one scandal, one mishap, and all of a sudden that whole church falls apart. Tim Keller outlined uh, in a few articles he did on decline and renewal of the American church, which some of the elders have been reading, uh, that many churches have built their foundation on social justice issues, wanting to reach out and bring justice into the world. But the problem was, is they added on so many things to the gospel that all of a sudden the foundation couldn't hold what they were building and like a Lego building just topples over to the side. It can't support what they're trying to build. And then other churches have reduced 
the mission of the church so much that the foundation can't even help but build a structure or can't even think, come close to building a structure that can support the weight of the mission that what God has given us. See, foundations are so, so important. And so this morning, I want us to have a foundation check. And I think that there is actually nothing more foundational in scripture, nothing more foundational in scripture than the Trinity, than the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, equal in substance and power and glory forever. The most foundational part of Christian belief. And some of y'all are looking at me and going, okay, that's an interesting choice. So you're not gonna go with love. You're not gonna go with Jesus. You're not gonna go with peace or joy or hope or salvation. But you see, all those things are foundational things, aren't they? And I would agree, all of those things are super important to what it means to live for Christ. But love, joy, peace, salvation, all of those things, you only get those right if you get who God is right. You only can understand love, joy, peace, salvation, all of these big things, all these big ideas that we talk about in Christianity, if you get God right. A.W. Tozer said, once, and this is maybe one of my favorite quotes, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It's the most important thing about you. See, love, joy, salvation, they are understood when we know God's nature, when we know what God is like. And so what I want us to do this morning is that first John passage I read is one of the most Trinitarian passages in all of scripture written by John, who probably is the theologian and the gospel writer who most loves to talk about the Trinity. And I want to talk about his foundation. How is he building a foundation for the Christian life, for the church, based on this doctrine of the Trinity? Because far from the Trinity being kind of this esoteric, very complex, very kind of verbose doctrine that, you know, the people in the universities talk about, the Trinity is the core. It's the foundation that can build the structure that we want to be as a church in 2023 as we reach the world for Christ. So I want to ask the question, how does the Trinity as a foundation help us live faithfully in our time? And I think three ways. First, it teaches humility over power. It teaches humility over power. And so the first thing I hope you noticed when I was reading through the passage is this connection between love and gift. Love and gift, right? Verse nine, the love of God was made manifest, manifest among us in this way. First, that God sent his only son into the world for us to live through him. And second, that Jesus was sent as the propitiation for our sin. And that propitiation, that's a really big word, but that just means the payment for the debt that we owed. He is the sacrifice. He is the payment. So the love of God is made most clear in the giving of God's son to give life to us on behalf of another. And I think Jesus would also quote this, and John quotes him in John's, or Jesus is quoted in John's gospel saying this, greater love has no one than this that he would lay down his life for his friends. There's a connection between love and gift. And what I want us to see 
is that there's this self-sacrificial nature of the Trinity that's evident throughout Scripture. It's evident in this passage. It's evident in other places. And what he comes back to, and what John's trying to come back to again and again, is the way that the Trinity will always give and defer honor to each other. That this is a trinity of a relationship where everyone is giving and giving honor to each other, right? In this passage, the father gives the son as a sacrifice. The father and the son give the spirit, which allow us to know God himself. In the gospel of John, there are a couple other examples. Jesus spends his life trying to reveal the Father. The Father is trying to reveal the Son. I got up here a few months ago and preached on the Holy Spirit. And what's the Spirit's trying to do? The Spirit is trying to reveal Jesus, right? In each case of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of them are trying to reveal and bring honor and give each other to us. See, there's a self-sacrificial nature to who God is. Now, that may sound great, but also sounds a little philosophical. So what does that have to do with us living today? Well, if a Trinitarian God gives glory and attention to each other, where they seek to humble themselves and exalt one another, then what should that say about us living in his image? It means that life is one lived in humility, not in power. And that's a very simple concept. I think we all know that in our heads, but when I say that, when life is supposed to be lived in humility, not in power, that is a major rub against this cultural moment, isn't it? Augustine, uh, who wrote City of God, Tim and I have quoted it on a handful of occasions. Uh, Back in the days of Rome, when Rome fell, Augustine wrote this incredible work where he talked about this idea of the libido dominandi, or this lust to rule, what Augustine says is one of the major problems of humankind, of the humans because of the fall, because of sin, is that we have this longing and this lust to dominate, to have power, and to rule. We want to control. We want to take ownership. We want to be in power. And that doesn't just happen in the halls of Washington, D.C., but that happens in every home. You don't have to teach your toddler how to say mine right? It plays out in so many abuse situations. Friends, it plays out on a college football Saturday. Recently, I walked into an away stadium and not everybody, there are a lot of great college football fans, but there are some who are hurling insults and things that I wouldn't even speak up here to us, not because we did anything, but because their team had won. And what it is, is it's this way to get power indirectly through a rivalry win, sure, but it's a way to have something over someone else, right? And I'm not naive enough to say that my school doesn't do the exact same thing. See, in our world, we crave power and we're desperate to figure out power dynamics between people, aren't we? right? Who has the power and how do I get the power back, right? That's what underlies the fears of every cable news thing that you watch, right? When they start talking about justice movements on either the right or the left, it isn't justice we're actually talking about. It's power, right? Justice movements that hide as power grabs terrify the right and 
People who reject justice in order to keep power terrifies the left. We're talking about the same thing, but it's not justice, it's power. See, no matter the setting, no matter the stakes, power has always been something that our hearts crave, and we don't want to give it up, and we'll do anything to gain it. And so enter in God himself, who had his very core, his own being, is someone who willingly exalts and exalts within himself the Son, willingly gives of the Spirit, right? There's an example there of a new way forward in our world, right? It's about humility over power, right? God gives himself sacrificially. So that has to be what defines us as a church. Part of the critique of the American church that I find extremely valid is that we are so obsessed with trying to stay relevant. We are so obsessed with trying to stay relevant that we will compromise our values to hold on to whatever bit of cultural relevance we have, whatever bit of power we have left, because what we're scared we might lose a platform, If we say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, then somehow we're no longer going to be relevant and we no longer can preach the gospel and then all of this will be for naught. But friends, if God is God, the truth will never be quenched and the gospel will never be put out. And what the Trinity reminds us is that when you have power, it's the most transformative when you lay it down. See, a foundation of cultural relevance, of power, of being able to make moves in the culture that actually can't support the mission of God. Actually, it's a people who build their lives on a Trinitarian understanding of humility, where we give, we lay down, we love with no expectation or condition because we trust in a God who has true authority and power so we can be free to be humble. So that's the first thing the Trinity teaches us is that it's humility, not power, the second is that it teaches us the importance of community. And the next thing I hope you saw in this text is another connection between God, loving God, and loving your neighbor, right? John says it in kind of a couple different ways over and over again. Verse 11, if God loved us, so you also should love your neighbor. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. See, there's this direct connection between loving God in loving your neighbor. Because if you understand who God is at your core, it cannot help but lead you to love your neighbor, right? And that's a connection that comes from the very core of who God is, right? Because in the triune God, God is a community within himself. God is a community within himself. At the very core of God, we a self-giving, loving community. Go back to Genesis 128 when God makes mankind. What does he say? Let us make mankind in our image, right? Note the plurals. God is a community who creates mankind in his image. And part of that image, if we're made in God's image, and he's a community, is that we exist alongside each other. Each of us need each other. And as the Trinity shows, have a responsibility for each other. And in the midst of a modern culture that we're trying to reach right now, where there's rampant individualism, I think that gives the church a really unique story to tell, doesn't it? A really unique story to tell. See, kind of give a little history lesson. Part of why individualism 
has taken hold in our modern society is that if you go back to the medieval era, even into the 20th century, how community used to operate was that you were a part of the community that you were a part of. And that community formed and shaped your identity. So everything from if you were born into a carpenter's family, guess what you became? You became a carpenter. All your ideals, all your values were formed based on the community that you were a part of. And what happened is when the Enlightenment came, what the Enlightenment did at a very summarized level is it took all of the meaning and purpose that was given to you and it took it and then it put it inside you and said, you know what? No longer does the world tell you what you ought to think and believe and do, but it actually now it rests in you. You now have the responsibility and the gift to be able to define your own meaning and purpose in life. You get to define it all. You have that responsibility. And that's how we've gotten to where we've gotten today. But what we found is that as more and more people live this individualized life where they belong to themselves, they get to make their own meaning and purpose of the world, a couple other things have also happened. We have higher loneliness rates than any other time in human history. Depression's on the rise, suicide's on the rise. Those are serious conversations we're having right now, right? Depression is on the rise. So what are we seeing? Well, as more and more individuals say, you know what, I am responsible for my own meaning and purpose that I wanna create for myself, what we're finding is that actually God created us a different way. God created us for community, because that's at the very nature of who God is. But the church has a unique story to tell because it's not like community of the Middle Ages where everything was decided for you and you just have to be rank and file and follow along. Actually, we believe in a community that centers on celebrating individual people. That we celebrate people's gifts. We celebrate people's talents. We want people to thrive and succeed. That's why Christianity is so focused on people like the widows and the orphans in scripture. It's because we love and we believe in the value of people. But we also say that there is a standard. There is a way in which our community is aligned towards a common goal and a common purpose that is revealed in scripture. And so we celebrate the unique ways in which people are created while also conforming ourselves to a standard of holiness that God has given us because we know that leads to flourishing life. And what our culture wants to say is you can't have one or the other. You either celebrate people and the way that they know that they're made and their gifts and talents, or you have to align yourself with a repressive community that's gonna take away all individualism. But the church following in the foundation of the Trinity, three persons, but one God, three in one, that tension allows us to hold attention to the world where we can be a community that loves and celebrates the uniqueness, the diversity of our community while also recognizing that we form ourselves around one objective standard of truth, right? Three in one, individualism and community can go together in the Christian gospel. Finally, Trinity teaches us humility over power. Trinity teaches us importance of community. Finally, it gives us a vision to aim for. It gives us a bullseye to throw the arrow at or to throw the dart at. And I want to finish this morning by looking at a verse that has always drawn my attention to reading it. And I think maybe more than anything else in this passage, it helps us focus ourselves on a Trinitarian foundation. Verse eight, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love.
Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Notice what it doesn't say there. It doesn't say that God is loving. It says that God is love. He is the fullness of love. He is the only definition of love. He is the standard of love. And why do I make a really big deal about that? Well, because in our modern world, what we tend to do, and maybe you might agree with me, is we tend to rally around certain values, certain ideals that draw us together, right? So if I say, what does the U.S. rally around? Well, we rally around the value of freedom, right? If you talk to a justice or a social movement, what do they rally around? Well, they rally around love, right? Technology, if you talk to the technological sector, what do they rally? Well, we're rallying around progress. Sports teams, what do they rally around? Rally around grit and competitiveness, right? And all of these are good things. They're all good things. They're all values and they're all worthy visions to aim for. But if we're building a foundation on which we can reach the world, the church, none of those suffice. None of those actually suffice. And here's why. And C.S. Lewis kind of put it a little bit tongue-in-cheek, and I'm going to paraphrase him a little bit. When has accounting, accounting itself, when has that counting ever brought forth a balance sheet? When has rhyme ever written a poem? It doesn't make sense. Those things don't do those. Accountants write balance sheets, right? Poets write poems right? Abstract ideas don't do anything. They don't do anything. And the reason I think that this is so important is because when we talk about love, which First John is all about, when we talk about love, love doesn't do anything. Love is an abstract con- concept. There can be many definitions to what love is, but love doesn't do anything. Here, enter John, who says, who takes this abstract concept of love, and what does he say? God is love. God is love. And why is that such a foundational, earth-shattering statement? Because all of a sudden, love is knowable. All of a sudden, there's a way to know what love is. There's a standard to what love is and what love is. And all of a sudden, it takes this abstract and it puts it into the real, the concrete, the facts. C.S. Lewis once said, you can't build your life on just principles and ideas. You need to build it on a concrete, utter fact, and that God is love. And this is what love is, that God sent his son for us, that God sent his his propitiation, his atonement for our sin. And we see it where? We see it in an empty tomb. We see it on a cross. That is what love is. And so when we're building our lives, when we're building our foundation, having a trinity, when we know who God is, when we know his nature, when we know what he's like, all of a sudden that allows us to actually take steps forward, right? When we know what God is like, when we know that this is what love is, then this is how our church can serve other people. If we know who God is and what love is, then this is what our family can look like. This is what our marriage can look like. This is what it looks like for me to be on mission because I know what it looks like for God to be on mission. You see, when we know God, we have a target we can aim at. Not just some ethereal abstract idea that, you know, I don't know what that means. No, we have a concrete, utter fact. Right? It gives us a vision to aim for. And that's the beauty of what a Trinitarian foundation gives us. 
as we come to the table. I think that this actually summarizes, summarizes everything we've been talking about this morning, right? Humility over power, the importance of community, a vision to aim for, right? Humility over power. This is a simple meal. If you go read in 1 Corinthians, part of the teaching of Paul to the Corinthian church is to tone down the extravagance and the decadence of the Lord's Supper. Why? Because this is a humble meal where all are welcome to come. This is not a power grab. It teaches us the importance of community. We take this meal together. We don't take it alone, but we take it not only with Jesus who meets us at the table by faith, but we take it with each other. And finally, it gives us a vision to aim for that this is what love is. The broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. So let's come together as we build our lives on a Trinitarian foundation for 2023 and come and receive and taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, you gave your life to give us new life, and we thank you for it. That is love. I, we pray that you bless these elements and that through them you bless every regenerated human soul that comes and partakes in this sacrament. Amen.